a letter from the people of the United States to the nations of the world. Dear nations of the world, you may have noticed a man traveling around your area apologizing for the actions of the United States of America. Even though this man happens to be the President of the United States of America, we thought you should know that he does not speak for the people of the United States of America. We the people do not apologize to you. In fact, we the people think you should thank us. In fact, we think you should kiss our collective butt in gratitude and appreciation for all we've done for you. For instance, Argentina. The other day, President Obama apologized to you for our CIA. Our CIA supported right-wing South American groups to try to keep communist groups from taking over your stinky, godforsaken countries. Obama apologized, but we, the people of the United States, do not apologize. We, the people of the United States, say, you're welcome, knucklehead South Americans. It really was nice of us to try to save you from your own tyrannical stupidity. Believe me, if there had been any freedom-loving, good government types running around in your idiot jungles, we would have supported them instead of the right-wingers. But there weren't. You're bad. We did what we could. Nice of us, I know. Don't mention it. The same President Obama has even traveled around the Middle East apologizing to Quranic slave states for the behavior of the freest land in existence. But we, the people of the United States, do not apologize. We, the people, think you in the Middle East are heathen savages. The only reason we haven't blasted you to atoms as you deserve is because we're constrained by our superior Judeo-Christian values. We also think your headwear looks ridiculous and your beards are filthy. And if your women had the brains God gave a goose, they'd be baptized en masse and then tell you fat creeps to keep your grubby hands to yourselves. If that sounds anything like we apologize, we apologize because we don't apologize. As far as we're concerned, we think you ought to pray to Allah that we conquer you so your crap countries can start to be run well and your people can be free. Or you could pray to the real God, which might work better. Meanwhile, the next time Obama bows to one of your foul and abusive sultans, imagine we, the people of the United States, planting our collective boot on his buttocks. Because he's not us, he doesn't represent us, and nothing he says is coming from us. And to those countries Obama hasn't gotten around to apologizing to yet, we the people would just like to say, if you're free, enjoy your freedom on us, because we preserved it for you by protecting you from your enemies. That is, unless we gave it to you by shoving it down your backward slavery-loving throats. If you're not free, then you're not worthy even to be talking to us. Get free and then get back to us. We still won't apologize, but at least you'll be fit to be in the same room with Americans. Well, that's it from us here in the States. Otherwise, we're having a wonderful time. You wish you were here. Love America. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> I just thought they'd like to know, you know. <laughs> Thank you, people of the United States, for getting in touch. All right, I hope you had a wonderful Easter. We have a new ad from Hillsdale College, a new course. We told you about their Constitution course, and I got a lot of letters telling me it was great. I haven't had a chance to sample it yet, but I will. But they also have a course in economics. Now, a lot of times when people talk about economics, they sound like, and that may be because you're talking to Chinese people. But if you'd learn, like to learn about economics in English, all you do is you need to take Economics 101 from Hillsdale University. That's right. Economics 101 from Hillsdale University. It's a free course they or you can take right now when you go to hillsdale.edu slash Andrew. Liberals would learn that the left's government-down economic policy is all wrong for America, or humans, and that the free market is the only thing that will save our economy. Self-proclaimed conservatives will learn why big import tariffs and mass deportations will crumble our economy. So get educated. Sign up for Hillsdale College's Economics 101 for free at hillsdale.edu Andrew and get a new lesson every week 
right in your inbox from Hillsdale's professors. Now, it said Hillsdale University, but it's a college, right? Yeah. We, should, we should change that in the copy, but in either case, it sounds like a great course. And economics is the one thing that nobody knows about that everybody should know about because it really affects them. We're going to hear today, we're going to hear today that the one person who should be taking Economics 101 from Hillsdale College is the President of the United States. I have got some stuff to play today that is going to blow your head off. I mean, this is not, not just the, Obama is like the least of what you're going to hear today. And I know you haven't heard it because I went to the mainstream media, so you didn't have to and you can hear it you can hear it here first so anyway I had a did everybody have a good Easter yes yeah okay well I, I had a great Easter it was really uplifting and uh, inspiring and I read you know I'm reading this book by a Jesuit priest named I think his name is James Martin and interestingly I opened the Wall Street Journal I'm reading a book it's called uh, Jesus a pilgrimage and I opened the Wall Street Journal on Saturday and they have that wonderful review section best review section in the country uh, reviews books and arts and theaters on. He had the lead story. He had this big two-page story on why Easter hasn't become commercialized like Christmas has. And I have my own theories about this, but his theory was that basically the belief in Easter, like anyone can be born. So Christmas, any, anybody can celebrate Christmas. But in order to celebrate Easter, you really have to believe this tremendous event, this incredible event of the resurrection. And it just asks the question that we talk about, the Jacob Marley question, which I think is the most important question, where Jacob Marley's ghost shows up in a Christmas carol and he says, man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? And I think that this is the moment in, at Easter when we get asked this question. And if you do believe, it changes everything. And one of the things that it changes is it changes the political landscape from a Russian tragedy to a Russian comedy. You know, Danny, Danny Kaye, the comic actor, one of the most funniest men who ever lived, Danny Kaye, he used to say, you know, the Russians are very dour people. And they write this very dour, you know, crime and punishment, that kind of thing. And so he would say that a Russian, in a Russian tragedy, everybody dies. In a Russian comedy... Everybody dies, but they die happy. And so, and so when you believe in the resurrection, when you believe in the Spirit, when you believe in God and the promises of the New Testament, it's still, a they still everybody still dies, but they die happy. And the same thing is true when you watch this political landscape, because what we are seeing, this is a country, some of you may remember, if you look at your dollar bill, you see the guy with the funny hair on your dollar bill, that's George Washington. He was the first president of this country, one of the best people who ever lived, literally one of the, you know, one of the most virtuous, decent people who ever lived. And he was our first president, and now we have Obama which is not like, that's not like a slow downward progression. That's like an anvil being <laughs> dropped from an airplane, you know, splat. So now we have Obama as the president. And we had this incredible, I, I mean, everybody running for president right now, with the, the possible exception of Ted Cruz, because I still have not heard the, a case against Ted Cruz. I haven't heard anybody make a case against Ted Cruz that's stuck in any way. But the rest of them running for president, I'm talking on the left and the right, and I have friends on the left and the right, and I'm embarrassed for them. They're making excuses for Hillary Clinton. You know, they're making excuses for this woman who sold her offices for gain. She was, it, she was the Secretary of State. She sold interests in a uranium company that the Russians got hold of, something like 20% of our uranium. She, when she was in the Senate, she sold business, uh, she sold business influence. She, she got good bills for businesses if they gave money to her foundation. 
all these, you know, if you're wondering why her emails were on that private server, it wasn't just for fun. It was to hide the fact that she sells influence, you know. And I, I listen to left-wingers making excuses for her, and I just think you're better than this. Even even left-wingers are better than this, you know. And then I look at Trump, and I think the same thing with my friends on the right. You know, this guy, our president, used to be, we had George Washington, we had Abraham Lincoln, Donald Trump. you got to be kidding me, you know. <laughs> but, but possibly the nadir of our presidency is Obama, Obama's last week. And, you know, we had this terrible terrorist attack in Brussels, and he's standing next to a communist dictator, Raul Castro, and he's teaching him to do the wave at the baseball game, and then he goes to Argentina, and he dances the tango, and it's like complete, complete non-understanding of what he looks like, or maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't care. It may come down to that. So I thought, well, what is the what is the mainstream media, by which I mean the left wing media? How are they covering for this guy? You know, what are, what are they saying about this guy? So I went on the PBS News Hour, and the PBS News Hour is really a joke because they have a panel discussion and they have they debate the left and the right. <laughs> on the left, on the left is this guy Mark Shields, a reliably left wing columnist, and on the right is who David Brooks, a reliably left-wing columnist who pretends to be, he pretends to be the uh, conservative guy at the New York Times. I mean, the only real conservative columnist at the New York Times is Ross Douthat. He's also the only columnist at the New York Times who's not only not going to hell, I think the rest of the rest of the guys at the New York Times are actually phoning in their stories from hell. You know, it's like, this is Maureen Dowd. With it. It's like, I know, it's Charles Blow. It's Charles, you sound just like Maureen. I know, it's just like, don't pay any attention to that. It's, you know, it's like, these guys, they are such knuckles. This is Paul Krugman. Gee, you sound just like Maureen Dowd. Yeah, don't pay no, pay no attention to that. So, so Ross do that is a good, a good columnist at the time. But, David Brooks, he's the guy who loved Obama, the crease in Obama's pants. He loved the crease in Obama's pants. And that's his ideas of conservatism. It's dressing well. You know, if you dress well, that the fact that you're a communist doesn't matter, you know. So he, so they go on with Judy Woodruff. And Judy Woodruff is hilarious. I mean, she is so left-wing that, like, whenever, whenever Obama does anything wrong, she asks, she talks about it, like, with concern. She says... You know, does it really matter that Obama did, you know, blew up the, the Iraq? Does it really matter that he, I mean, isn't, so he goes on, first Mark Shields makes the case that all these problems that we have, all of them, George W. Bush, let, listen to Shields, just, I just want to show you what they, what is the left of them, and of course, if you're watching, you can see Judy Woodruff nodding and, you know, with real understanding. Go ahead. Let's be very frank, the organizing principle of this was the United States invasion of Iraq. Um, and the United States occupation of Iraq. Right. I mean, that, that remains to this moment. The, uh, whether we left early, should stood, be there. The, the fact that we went in, invaded, and occupied this country, and it was a, a tragedy and a disaster, and we have reaped that whirlwind, and it remains with us. It, it's true. You know, if, if we hadn't invaded Iraq, there would have been no attack on the World Trade Center. Oh wait, you know, I mean, <laughs> like if we hadn't invaded Iraq, they wouldn't, there wouldn't have been any Islamic terrorism, which was going on for years. We just, we finally paid attention to it, but it does, you know, yes, yes, okay, we surrendered after we won. Obama surrendered the victory after we won. Yes, he drew a red line in Syria, and then when they crossed it, he didn't pay. Yeah, okay, but the real problem is George W. Bush. Now here's here's my favorite part. Here now we get to David Brooks, and Judy Woodruff. Terrible concern. She's she says, you know, okay, Obama may have had some, but but really, you know, we're listening 
we're, we're listening to these attacks on his optics, the optics, what things look like. So listen to Judy ask the question, and David Brooks gives the wonderful answer, my favorite answer. David, even criticism this week of the, of the optics. The president was in Cuba for this historic visit, and there were some voices, well, he shouldn't have gone to the baseball game. He shouldn't have gone on to Argentina. I mean, how much does that matter? Yeah, I think those criticisms are unfounded. Um, the pre the, we have a big government. We can do a lot of things at once. If the president had skipped the baseball game and gone home, what more could he have done? I mean, he, he has a telephone. Uh, he can make decisions. He can have meetings. Uh, it's my basic principle that the, that's just political point scoring. It's my most fundamental basic principle. There's never a good reason to miss a baseball game. Oh, there's never a good reason. We're scraping the blood off the walls. They're killing children, in fact. But there's no, that David Brooks, he's just, he's a guy. I just love that. That is so, you know, I mean, really, there's never a good, you know, let me, let me tell, yes, do I have time? Of course I do. Let me tell you my only story, my only personal story about George W. Bush, okay? I met George W. Bush one time. I shook hands with him. And I was invited to the Laura Bush's authors gathering all day long. And you end up in, I guess it's the National Library, you know, in this beautiful, beautiful room and you have a big dinner. And I was invited and, you know, gave a reading and all this stuff. And there are all these authors. I talked to Salman Rushdie. That was like, that was great. I, you know, you're walking around a party and you've got no one to talk to, you know, and you look over and there's Salman Rushdie and he's got no one to talk to. So I thought, well, I'll go talk to Salman Rushdie, you know. So I, I said to him, you know, do you feel like you were the first guy, you know, the first guy to feel, you know, you, you'll remember that he was threatened with death. And I went out, I was a baby mystery writer at the time. I went out and protested because the bookstores took his uh, book off the shelf and all this. And I was still a left winger then. And left wingers were saying, what are you doing? He, he insulted Islam. You know, <laughs> I was like, I don't care what he insulted. He wrote a book. You, could pay, you can't kill a guy for writing a book. But who knew it was the beginning? So I talked to him and then I go in and it's, it's dinner time. And I look at the table and they have little place cards and my place card is next to the president of the United States. Okay. So I'm going to be sitting there making small talk with the president of the United States. And I, I like thought, well, that's cool. You know, like you couldn't even be nervous because you thought like you're going to make an idiot out of yourself. <laughs> you're talking to the president of the United States, but I'm going to be sitting at dinner with the president of the United States. Now, the financial crash had just happened. I mean, within days, it was within days of the financial crash. And so just before dinner starts, they there's this brass band comes in place, hail to the chief. It's very impressive. And Bush walks in in a tie and jacket and comes over and shakes the hands of all us, the people who are seated at his table. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't stay because I have to go, you know, fix, deal with this financial crash. And he walked away and one of his people came up and explained to us that he didn't want there to be a photo op of him in a tuxedo drinking champagne and having dinner while people were suffering. Okay. He wasn't running for anything. That was the end of his administration, right? He was, he was done. He was just about to leave. He had nothing to lose. He had nothing, you know. He just didn't want the leader of the free world to be seen partying while people's tax, you know, stock portfolios were being wiped out, while people were losing their house. He wanted to let them know with his optics, right, that he, he cared about them. He was their leader and he cared about them. That's not optics, okay? That's leadership. You know, they use this word optics and and that's why that's why when you know Brooks is sitting there going, oh, there's no good time, no bad, you know, no good reason to miss a baseball game. You know how how elite elitist, never mind elite, how elitist do you have to be to not care?
care about those people who are being blown up, about the people in Pakistan, the families in Pakistan who are being blown up. No good reason to miss a baseball game. Even when they start killing women and kids in, in Pakistan, even when they crucify a priest in Yemen, no good reason to miss a baseball game. That, those are your, that's your elites, folks. Those are your, those are your thought leaders, okay, at the New York Times, a former newspaper. Let me pause here. I was just looking for this. On top of everything else, you have to protect your privacy, right? Because your privacy is under attack from big companies who are scanning your emails and targeting your computer with unwanted advertisement. Government agencies who may even be worse, who may even be worse than those big companies, are collecting data at alarming rates. They are collecting every piece of information they can get their hands on, but you can trust them. Or, or you can trust them, or you can take back your privacy by getting an email address at reagan.com. You'll get your name at reagan.com as your private email address. And not only will you be able to share Reagan's name with all the leftists that you dislike in every email that you send, it will be like, it'll be like going to their house and slapping them every time you send an email. It'll be so incredibly satisfying. But at the same time, you know your emails will never be scanned or shared with third parties. No unwanted ads. When you write to your wife about what you'd like for Christmas, you don't have to suddenly get a bunch of ads. Nobody's going to be taking personal information for the government. Go to reaganprivacy.com right now and secure your personal private email address. And if you go right now, you get two free bonus months. Reaganprivacy.com. Do it. All right. Let's go back to our friend David Brooks because now, okay, uh, let's move to the, to the larger picture, the larger picture of this question of ideas and whether ideas matter. Because now David Brooks goes on to explain why there's terrorism. Why, why it really doesn't matter, why you shouldn't not go to a baseball game. He's going to explain to you why there's terrorism. Play the second Brooks cut. Yeah, I, I've spent the last week so repulsed by, Ted, by Donald Trump, I'd forgotten how ugly Ted Cruz could be, but he reminded <laughs> us this week. Uh, you know, it, as I said, and as everyone says, the reason we have terrorism is not because the Prophet Muhammad came down and not because there's a religion called Islam. That's right. The reason we have terror uh, is that uh, young men are alienated, and feel they can wage war, an unjust war, against societies that are uh, racist and xenophobic and crushing toward them. And if you want to spread that message, a good way would be to have extra police operations directed at Muslim neighborhoods. So he's picking on Ted Cruz for suggesting we need more policing in Muslim neighborhoods because we don't have, we don't have terrorism because of the Prophet Islam. What do I, ideas don't matter. It doesn't matter what God you believe in. I believe in a God of love. You believe in a God of killing everybody who's not you. What's the difference? Come on. It's, it's all God. All roads lead up the mountain. You know, this, this guy makes his living peddling ideas, and he thinks ideas don't matter. The only reason there's terrorism. Now, he, he goes on earlier and says, well, there's terrorism. For one reason, there's terrorism in the Middle East because Obama made all these mistakes. He withdrew from Iraq too soon, you know, and the red line in Syria, blah, 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 blah. Despite the crease in his pants, he didn't get everything exactly right. But that's not why there's terrorism in Europe. There's terrorism in Europe because the Europeans are such xenophobic bigots, basically, that they haven't let these guys assimilate, and so they've all been radicalized. You know, they're such xenophobic bigots that... They let all these people come into their country, gave them a home there, and assumed innocently that they would think, be so grateful that they would adopt the standards of the country. And when they didn't, they didn't like that very much, and so they were mean to them. You know, I mean, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. So ideas don't matter, okay? That basically, that was basically the message that Obama was sending as he went down to 
as he went down to uh, these communist countries, to Cuba and then Argentina, which is not a communist country now, but he went down to Cuba. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Right? You know, you, Raul, you know, you're a communist. I'm a president of the United States. What's the death? You know, we're, let's, let's be pals. So he goes to Argentina and he makes this speech to a bunch of, of young people. He explains very carefully the difference between communism and capitalism to these young Argentinians. You know, so often uh, in the past, there's been a sharp division between left and right, between capitalist and communist or socialist. And especially in the Americas, that's been a big debate, right? Ah, you know, you're, you're a capitalist Yankee dog, and oh, you know, you're some, you know, crazy communist, you know, that's going to take away everybody's property. And, I mean, those are in, in, interesting intellectual arguments, but I think for your generation, you should be practical and just choose from what works. You don't have to worry about whether it neatly fits into socialist theory or capitalist theory. You should just decide what works. What works? What works? Which works better, a pen or a car? Which works better, you know? That it doesn't matter what you're trying to accomplish, right? Like, if I, if I ask, you know, what he's talking, what he's talking about is not only, it's not only wrong to begin with, but it makes no sense, okay? It, it depends what problem you're trying to solve. Now, he goes on to say that, but I want you to listen to what he thinks the problems you're trying to solve. Now, remember, he just got back from a country, Cuba, that is right off our coast. It's a beautiful, beautiful tropical paradise that could be running a tourist operation, could be getting all these American dollars, and has has basically impoverished itself with, with communism. He says, he tells this audience, he was very impressed with Cuba because everybody there gets an education and everybody there gets health care. Okay? He's, he's telling you, you know, he's just come back from this country that's frozen in the 1950s. But he did notice it was frozen in the 1950s. So now he goes on to say, but there's something, there's something wrong. Even though communism has done wonderful things, it's gotten them education, it's gotten them health care, but there are some problems. So go ahead. You drive around Havana, and this economy is not working. It, it, it looks like it did in the 1950s. And so you have to be practical in asking yourself, how can you achieve the goals of equality and inclusion, but also recognize that you know, the market system produces a lot of wealth and goods, and services, and innovation. And it also gives individuals freedom because they have initiative. And so you don't have to be rigid in saying it's, it's either this or that. You can say, depending on the problem you're trying to solve, depending on uh, the social issues that you're trying to address, what works? What works? What works? Okay. So you remember when Barack Obama told, got up and told people who had built their own business that you didn't build that? You didn't build that, you know, because there were roads. You could take stuff, you know, other people built those roads. You didn't build that because there was a postal service and the government, you know, that, that this is this incredibly stupid idea that the postal service and the roads preceded the wealth that was built that he was used to pay for them. It's insane. You know, how did they build the Postal Service and the roads? They took money from people who had created wealth, and they used that. And people were willing to do that because we could all use it together. But, 
But that doesn't mean they're willing to put your kid through college. It doesn't mean they're willing to pay for your birth control. It doesn't mean they suddenly owe you, you know, I give you a cookie. Now you want the whole house. You know, that's not what it's about. Okay. So he says to you, you didn't build that. Well, the thing is, Obama doesn't realize that he didn't build the ideas that have made him president of the United States. He didn't build the idea that made the United States so powerful that he could stand there and talk nonsense like that without being swept off the face of the earth. I mean, if we were a, an ancient tribe and were that detached from reality, we'd be dead in seconds, all of us. We're just so powerful because of this tower of ideas, this tower of ideas that begins in Greece and Jerusalem, in Athens and Jerusalem, comes together in Rome and builds up through the West People died for those ideas. They fought for those ideas, and they were trying to accomplish something. They were trying to figure out what is best for man. Who is man and what is best for man, okay, for mankind? That's what they were trying to figure out. They weren't trying to solve the problem of, oh, we need more, you know, better cars. We don't like those cars in Cuba. Those cars don't look good. But but we want, you know, we want education for everybody, free education. How, how did we get those things? They weren't trying to figure out. They were trying to figure out what is the best life for man. And they killed each other over these things, and they spent their lives. Some guys some guys went down dead ends and wasted their lives trying to think these things through. Some people didn't have, you know, some people just didn't have the, the talent to write down their ideas and sell them. I mean, you know, millions of lives over centuries disappeared and were lost building this foundation that he's standing on top of, and he thinks he's floating in midair. It's like that Bill Mark, well, that's just common sense. It's not common sense. If it were common sense, everybody would be doing it, okay? There's a series of ideas that were built up, and what they are trying to accomplish is not a better car, and it's not health care. It's human liberty, okay? It's the idea that what you do, what you choose, is for you alone, that you are a child of God, completely sovereign over yourself, as far as that's possible within the reality of a fallen world. That's basically the idea. That's what we're trying to achieve. So when he decides that your money, you know, you, you make money, when they say time is money, that's literally true, right? You go out and you make your money by spending your time doing something. Hopefully you're doing something you like, but if you're not doing something you like, you got to be doing something because you got to get that money. You have to be worthwhile to somebody else. Money just shows that you're worthwhile to somebody else. They're willing to pay you to do what you're doing, okay? You spend that time, you get that money. That money is just a symbol. It has no worth. It's a piece of paper. It has no worth of itself. It just symbolizes your time, your effort, your dreams, you know, your sacrifice. That's all it symbolizes. And he decides, he decides, Barack Obama, that the problem we're trying to solve is getting some kid educated somewhere. So he's going to take that money away and spend it as he sees fit. And he doesn't understand the idea that he's violating when he does that, the same way these students don't understand when they won't let, you know, Ben Shapiro or, you know, come to speak. They don't understand the ideas that they're violating when they do that because they stand on the shoulders of giants and they think that they're flying. They stand on the top of this tower of ideas and they think they're floating in their own virtue and common sense. Sense. And Barack Obama, this is why he doesn't care about terrorism. This is why he can go do the wave while people are dying. This is why he can dance the tango while people are dying. Because he has been quoted in the Atlantic as saying, in the Atlantic Monthly, as saying, you know, more people die in bathtubs, falling down in bathtubs in America, than die in terrorism. And Nicholas Kristof, another one of these guys from the New York Times, he phoned in his column from hell. I have a column. I said, Wait a minute, you sound just like Maureen Dowd. He goes, ah, don't pay any attention to that. So here's Nick Kristoff's column, right? 
just this is the very, very beginning. Are terrorists more of a threat than slippery bathtubs? President Obama er, slipped into hot water when The Atlantic reported that he frequently suggests to his staff that fear of terrorism is overblown, with Americans more likely to die from falls in tubs than from attacks by terrorists. The timing was awkward, but he's roughly right on the facts. 464 people drowned in America in tubs, sometimes after falls in 2013, while 17 were killed by terrorists. The basic problem is this, says Nick Kristoff. The human brain evolved so that we systematically misjudge risks and how to respond to them. That is not the basic problem. The basic problem is to compare bathtub accidents with terrorism, is to compare a birthmark with cancer. It's like saying that birthmark is much bigger than that little cancer. Why are you worried about the cancer? Human evil, if not opposed, spreads. Bad ideas, if not opposed, spread. In 1935, and I hate to make the Hitler comparison, but I'm sorry, it is apt in this case. In 1935, you could have said the same thing. More people die at falls in bathtubs than are dying in Nazi Germany. What's the problem? You know what? It's ridiculous. He's not a Hitler's not an existential threat. We're America. He's a you know a little tiny German country. He's not an existential. But evil is a cancer. Bad ideas are a cancer. And it does matter which God you believe in, and it does matter which system you live under. And you know if you don't think it does, just go and look at the places where they don't live under free systems. This is a very sad thing that we have forgotten the ideas that made us great, and it is the reason, I think, that some of the worst people in the country are now running for president on both sides, you know, and I think that, I really do think that so far, as far as I can tell, Ted Cruz is the only exception. We really have some lowlifes, a communist, a felon, and a fascist running for president, and it's because we have forgotten what made us great. If you don't stand for those ideas, you don't stand for anything. If you just stand for, oh, some idea of America, you don't stand for anything. you got to stand for the ideas that made us great. Stuff I like, aside from great ideas, a lot of people have been asking me to recommend books about conservatism, like neo, n newbie conservatives say, well, what books do I read? And the thing is, that's not always the right question because a lot of times, you know, you could just read, like Mark Levin wrote an excellent book called Liberty and Tyranny, and that's kind of a primer on conservatism if you want that. If, but if you want to really build up the stuff that you are that you know and that you think, there are things you should read. You know, you should read the Federalist Papers and things like that, and you should read the Conservative Mind, all these things. So here this week, a couple of stuff I like that I think are basic texts that are really good. And the first one is called Witness by Whitaker Chambers. Witness by Whitaker Chambers, written in 1952. Whitaker Chambers was... Um, a, he was a, a Soviet spy who came to Christ and realized that he had made a mistake and he turned in to the government a guy named Alger Hiss, who was a major State Department uh, functionary who was also a communist spy. And Alger Hiss was a sophisticated, elegant member of the, the elite. He would have been David Brooks's pal. David Brooks would have palled around with Alger Hiss. And Whitaker Chambers was an unpleasant, bisexual, overweight guy who could barely speak English. And the elites went after Chambers with both bore. And they, they, one of the reasons they hated Richard Nixon is that Richard Nixon hounded Alger Hiss until finally he, he broke and they got, they got rid of him. They got him for perjury, I think. Years later, after they got all those telegrams out of the Soviet Union, it became clear that Chambers was right and Hiss was guilty. I mean, Hiss was guilty. He was a major State Department communist Soviet spy, okay, and the elites, the David Brookses of the world, the New York Timeses of the world stood up for him and attacked Whitaker Chambers. And Whitaker Chambers wrote his biography, why he became a Russian spy, why he became a Christian, why he stood up against Alger Hiss. And it is a beautiful book. It's beautifully written. It's I would call it life-changing. I don't think you can see the world the same way. He was uh, Chambers was very dour about the future of democracy. He thought he was on the losing side, but he was standing for it because it was right. And 
for all his flaws, for all the things he did wrong in his life, Whitaker Chambers wrote one of the great books. It was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite books, Witness. It, it will change the way you look at the world, and you should know who Alger Hiss is. I know Hugh Hewitt, when anybody ever comes on who he doesn't like, he always says, who is Alger Hiss? Do you know who Alger Hiss was? Well, you should know. He, he really was important because the, the, he was just the kind of guy just the kind of guy that people supported then because he was one of us. The crease in his pants was perfect. And Whitaker Chambers was a, a sl sloppy guy. I think he was a time, an editor of time. That's what he was. And, um, and, but, he, but Chambers was right, and his book about it is just absolutely fantastic. Stuff I like. All right. A new week now begins. Hey, this is going to be my last week, and then I get a week vacation. I'm going. It's not a vacation. I have to go to New York, meet with editors and things like that. So cherish every moment that we're together because I'll be gone for a week and you're doomed. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Come back tomorrow. We will do it again.